to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Cottrell, whom you might know as the host of the Developer Tea Podcast. During the day, he is a senior engineer at ClearBet and a co-founder of Spec FM. Jonathan Cottrell, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you so much for having me on, Robbie. I'm excited to talk about maintainable software and a bunch of other stuff with you. That's great. So first off on that topic, what do you believe are some common characteristics of a healthy and dare I say maintainable software code base? (laughs) That's a good question. And right on topic, I suppose. I think the, the first thing that I look for for maintainability is testing. This is something that having a testing strategy, regardless of how you test, there's a lot of ways to test software. You know, I have my way and I'm sure you have yours, but testing and having a consistent way of testing is critical to maintainability. If you have to go and read every line of code to know how that software works, then that's problematic, right? And so you don't want to leave any black holes for future developers to fall into. You don't want to leave dead code, right? So that's another kind of a fork in the road that leads to a dead end. And then kind of the second heuristic I like to use is the size of the code and not like the size of the whole code base, but a given concept in the code. Can you fit the concept in your head with a sufficiently small amount of effort, right? So the hope would be that you have components or classes or whatever your building blocks are, functions, methods, that are small enough that you can understand them and that you can hold all of the relevant pieces in your head without having to cross-reference and use other people to kind of help you understand along the way. I think when you touched on testing there and you mentioned things being consistent, you know, obviously we talk about automated testing, actually having real people performing some testing or QA, whether that be an internal team or some external team that you're taking advantage of or how, or maybe even real users doing that. Where you're at, what sort of approaches has your team taken to kind of keep consistent testing in place? Yeah, humans are good at a lot of things. Consistency is not one of those things. You know, we are pretty good at being about 90% consistent. And this is almost worse than being 0% consistent when it comes to software, right? We're reliable most of the time. And then those few times we're not. And so I would say whenever possible, take the load off of the human, take it into some kind of automated testing environment. And then when the load is on the human, give some kind of, and I keep on saying human, like I'm a robot, you know, when the load is on the engineer or on a QA specialist or, you know, whatever the title is where they're having to go and perform some task to make sure the software is doing what it's supposed to provide some kind of out of their brain way of proceduralizing that. Right. So checklists are a good way to do this. And so one of the things that we do, for example, we have a consistent PR template. And I think you can do this automatically in GitHub. There's a way to basically set up where you have a PR and then it auto fills it out. I'm sure GitLab does a similar thing. And that really helps to say, okay, here are the bases that you need to cover in every PR. And this is helpful for every kind of developer, regardless of how experienced you are, right? Because again, even the best developers are not going to be 100% reliable. What are some things in your PR process 
like template out of, out of curiosity, are there a couple of tangible things that may not be super obvious outside of this is why I did it this way type of thing? Or is it like, yeah, so we're kind of still developing this, right? It's, it's one of those things that it's a tool that keeps on organically growing. Some of the things in the, in the checklist are literally just reminders, right? It's, it's not like something that you have to actually check a box off to move forward on. For example, a reminder to let everyone in Slack know if you're going to merge this into master, go ahead and send out a, a message, right? Maybe the idea being that you know, because of our continuous integration kind of setup, if two people are merging at the same time, there may be some unexpected results, right? So some of it is just reminders. Other things that we have, we have things like, have you tested this locally? Have you run through, you know, if, if this is a feature that a user can actually manually check, have you done that? Have you actually done that locally? And it, it's not like a a hard box to check, right? But there have been times where I've pushed code, I've opened a PR, and I've only tested it locally. I haven't tested it in some kind of staging environment, right? Or the flip-flop, I've only tested it in staging and I haven't tested it locally. And it's important to at least to know where you have tested this, right? For people who are reviewing it, if you haven't tested it on, you know, whatever your cluster is in a staging environment that's accessible to the whole team, they may not be able to test it there either, right? They, they may be the first ones foraging into that, into that territory. What do you think developers often get wrong when they talk about, let's say, technical debt in a project? I think developers use our heuristics to understand technical debt. We use our understanding of technology to decide what is debt and what isn't. And it's an easy term to throw around because debt in the financial sense, there's a very clear line, right? We know what debt is. It's some money that we owe to some entity, another person, a bank, whatever. The problem with technical debt is the line is not so clear. And so you may have some heuristics around what good code means in your company, what good code means to you personally, but there's almost certainly disagreements between you and another person of what good enough would be. And whether you have on the flip side of debt, whether you are have profit, right? If the clean code is actually generating good things, or if you're just kind of breaking even. So it's a problem of language because the mental model of debt has a very clear line of where that debt is. And we need to be more clear on our teams about what is and what isn't constituting debt, because this really should be, you know, dependent on a few things. You have to kind of evaluate what does your team care about? What has been costly from a business perspective for your team? Some things that we think are debt may just be emotionally difficult to accept, right? It's, it's code that we wish was different, but isn't actually causing a problem. You know, we can't really forecast that it would cause a problem in the future. So there's there's a lot of different types of debt, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think there's often mislabeling to some degree of what technical debt is. But then also, as you're saying, people being emotional about that and even difficult or just disagreeing on what it is or isn't, because it feels like a very subjective metaphor that gets used often. At least my experience, usually referring to people that no longer work there. So it kind of becomes the scapegoat in a way. And it's like, well, I, this needs to get addressed. And maybe so I, it's is it also the difference between is it is it bad code? Like there's something inherently wrong with it or is it working and we never have to touch it anymore? Or at least rare, rarely, you know, 
and is it worth replacing it or not? I think is always a good question. Or what are the motivations for calling a technical debt? Like, what's what is the solution? Is it the if we're being honest with ourselves? Is it we think we can do it better in a different approach or a different tool set or a different library, or whatever the you know the case might be? Because I'm really interested in doing that. Maybe really being honest, I'm really curious about using this new piece of technology, and if I get to, this would be a good use case of that. And so sometimes we can you know, as humans, whether we want to admit it or not, because it could be completely like below our own radar, but it's, it's a thing that I think I can see in other people, but it's not always easy to see it in myself, I think. And so I think that's one way, at least I try to talk about it with some of my peers. It's like when they're bringing up technical debt, I'm like, well, but is it, you know, so. Yeah. I, I think one factor that I think should be pretty consistently considered technical debt is if this code is staying around, but you don't have any kind of validation of that code. We were talking about testing earlier. Validation could be it's been working for a long time without error. And so we have a lot of data saying that it's good. But generally speaking, testing, if you have a bunch of really critical code that doesn't have tests, that's probably a pretty good heuristic for you know, what debt is for you, at least you know, most immediately. That's a good point. You know, there are those scenarios where you've got code, it's been sitting there for five, 10 years, not been touched too much since it was originally built. Maybe it's some background importing task or does something behind the scenes. And nobody really understands exactly how it works, but everybody's just kind of crossing their fingers, hoping that they don't, they aren't the one that needs to be called upon when shit breaks. And so in that scenario, it's technical debt, I suppose, in a way, but it's also just like, it's a knowledge gap in your team. And nobody's taking the time to learn it. And there's maybe the lack of validation or any testing, automated testing in place or a checklist of things to look for or in there. And so that's, those are all good things, I think, for a team to explore, figuring out what, what do we need to do about this? I think, how does your team go about managing that? Like knowing that there's those kind of issues, do you keep like a running list of like, here's known open issues or questions that people frequently ask questions like, what the hell is this area of the code base do? Why is it like this? What's the status of it? Are we doing anything about it? Are we living with it for now? And that's a conscious decision we've made. I don't know that that's always super clear from team to team. Yeah, it's it's not clear. You know, I, I think the way that we handle a lot of this is because your highest churn code really should be your cleanest code. I believe that pretty strongly. And so whenever you touch code and you have an opportunity to make it better, that's a great point to do it, right? Picking up code that isn't changing much and fixing it, that's kind of like the mortgage kind of debt, right? That's low interest debt. It's not costing you a lot today. It may, maybe a better metaphor would be like a, a floating mortgage, like that interest rate may change in the future, right? That that code may need to change in the future. And maybe you would have been better off changing it earlier when, when the stakes were lower. I think, you know, all of these are questions about prediction. We're trying to predict what is going to happen bad if I don't change this code. And then also what is going to happen good if I do change the code. Right. And trying to balance that is a process of prediction. And I think as developers, we think about it more like ownership, right? Like our house, our house isn't clean. And so we want to go and clean a particular room because it's our house. It's, it has nothing to do with risk of future problems. It doesn't have anything to do with profit or losses. It's just we feel 
the need to clean things up. So managing that, I think, is partially a human kind of emotional process. Like we were saying earlier, you don't want developers feeling bad about their house, right? They have to walk around in this code every day, regardless of what are the benefits of cleaning it up. You know, one of the major undervalued benefits of cleaning up poorly designed code is the emotional benefit that it has for the developers who are working with it every day. I think you make a really good point there. And I'm assuming most people that be listening to this will find themselves as a developer. And I think it's an interesting thing to how to translate that into something good for a good case to like, say, your product managers or whoever the different stakeholders on the, in the, for that particular software code base is who's responsible for deciding priorities of that project. If you want to address some of those things and like how it's not only good for just the state of the code base from to make things simpler to work on in some ways, or at least feel more comfortable with it. But also I always think when people bring up these things like, Hey, we have these problems in, I might have a lot of opinions about how developers often do raise issues about that from like a maybe more of a, on the negative side about what they're dealing with. But if they talk more about like the ownership, the positive aspects to it, how this is going to help improve the the life cycle or the, the the velocity potentially in the future, if those are things that are constantly like impeding them. But I think there's, it's a worthwhile thing, I think, to explore there. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about the not only just the churn of the code, but also the churn of your your staff if they're having to work with something and that's, that can be maybe difficult to measure, but also I think it's worth at least raising, um, as part of your retention strategy should probably factor in the health of the code base too. Yeah. You take the trash out of the bathrooms in an office, right? You clean the dishes up, even if you aren't going to use them immediately, you don't clean one dish at a time. There's some kind of environmental, when I say environmental, I mean the living environment, environmental concerns. This is where we are spending time. If I'm having to look at something that really, you know, for me as an engineer is difficult to look at, right? It's like code gore. That's stressful in a way. It can really take a toll, I think, on the engineer's mindset. So let's take a moment to quickly talk about your podcast, Developer T. So I'm actually really curious as a new podcaster myself, what prompted you to start the podcast in the first place? A couple of things. I kind of wanted a podcast like this. And now, you know, four years later, there are quite a few podcasts that are in this in a similar space. Right. But the hope initially was a short enough podcast that when I take a break at work or when I'm walking, taking an afternoon walk or something, I could pop in my headphones and listen to five to 10 minutes and actually learn something. And up until that point, most of the podcasts that I had heard were long. And a lot of the time they were focused less on kind of the content and it was more like entertainment driven. That was okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those podcasts other than I couldn't finish them. And so I had this overwhelming amount of content that I couldn't really parse through. You know, I wanted to get some good stuff out of there. Right. And I found myself like putting it on 1.5 X and that wasn't enough. And so I ultimately decided, okay, you know what? I think that some good conversations can be had about, you know, the less technical aspects, more kind of human aspects of this job in kind of short, somewhat inspirational style. That's why I went with developer T. Technically, I was going to do something coffee related because I'm a coffee drinker. But unfortunately, coffee is there's quite a lot of taken real estate on iTunes for coffee. So we went with tea. All right. And out of curiosity, as a podcast host, reflecting on the last few years of doing this project, what are you getting out of it now? Like, I would say this is one of the most rewarding 
things I've done with my career in the sense that it is consistent. I have found a way to share my voice. I, I think a lot of people find a similar sense of expression in blogs and other types of, you know, maybe t- talking at conferences. And this for me, just, it really fits my, my personality. But the thing that really has been, I guess, rewarding the most has been when people send me emails saying, Hey, you know what? This episode or series of episodes that you did totally changed the way I think about some topic, topic X. Now I'm two years later, I've been listening to your podcast and it's, and it's shifted the way I think about my career. And I'm very careful to not take credit for their successes, of course. Right. But instead to say, Hey, you know what? Like we can think about things differently. And when we share our perspectives, this is why diversity is so incredibly important. When we share our perspectives that can give someone else a momentary lens that they didn't have. Right. And so now they can see their situation or a problem or their future differently than they did before. That's really the rewarding aspect of it for me. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. I was just mainly just kind of scratching my own curiosity, you know, having done this for a couple of years now. And I think I resonate a bit with that, finding some way to share some perspective. Yet in my format, I know I'm doing much more of an interview style format. I used to do a lot of blogging early on in my career. And that's kind of how my company kind of became a company and not just like me being a freelancer. And so, but I kind of felt like I've lost touch a little bit because I don't do a a lot of active coding on a regular basis. And you kind of fall into that trap of like, well, what do I have to say that someone else hasn't already said before on the internet, you know, in some capacity, it's kind of curiosity about trying to talk with more people and giving more people a platform to share their perspective on ideally talking about existing code, talking about the messy parts of projects you know, talking about the human aspect to that. Cause I just worry that as an industry, we often get pretty attracted to new shiny things and a lot of what we do is is not new and shiny. And so I wanted to kind of like illuminate some light on the messy parts of our industry that don't need to be necessarily a negative thing. It's just messy and we work through it. And that's something that comes with time and experience and that's okay. So. Yeah, I love that. I, I think it's a great idea. Maintainability is not just one subject, right? It, it's a whole suite of subjects. It's really human behavior as it relates to code. And I think that's something that no matter how much we talk about it, it will still be relevant, right? There's, you're never going to run out of topics here. Hopefully. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think I almost feel like you almost had my, my next question as a fellow podcaster, because I would love to switch over and talk about team dynamics a bit with you. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Do you believe there is a strong correlation between healthy code and healthy teams? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I don't have an immediate data point to point to. So maybe my belief is more idealistic than it is rational. I think that generally speaking, the, the data around teams, maybe not teams that build software, but teams in general supports that if you have personal connections with your manager, if you have personal connections with the people that you work with, if you feel appreciated, there's quite a lot of data actually that says those teams are the highest performing. Not only are they high, the highest performing, but they also have the best sticky factor, right? They don't have high turnover. People don't leave the team. And so you end up retaining people and growing people, which ultimately leads to a lot of kind of, um, I don't want to use the word synergy, but that's really what it is between the team members, right? They start gaining intuition for how each other work. So yeah, I, I totally believe that team dynamics 
produce major effects on the code. What do you believe are some common traits of like uh, of a good working team, like on the team level, not necessarily like how management and I guess some of that does come from management also from your peers, but like in terms of like whether or not a developer within a team feels appreciated, I think it's not only from management, obviously from their peers. What do you believe are some common healthy characteristics of a, of a team within the team? So if I could build the two characteristics that I think are most important for strong teams, um, we'll go with three. There's a lot, but I'm going to pick three to talk about right now. The first one is eradicating fear. This is maybe the hardest one. And when I say fear, I don't mean a huge amount of fear that a a truck is going to hit you. That's not the kind of fear that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the daily small fears of, is someone going to look at this code and judge me poorly for it? Am I going to say something that other people think is dumb, right? These are like really basic fears that every human faces. And if you're sitting here listening to this and you're a junior developer, you probably think that the senior developers never feel this way, that they they never feel like they're going to say anything stupid. That's not true. In some ways, even more so because we have more experience than We know that people expect more from us and that's a higher tower to fall from. So fear is a is a problem and a strong team regularly cleans that fear out together. Right. So like we try to figure out what is it that is causing uncertainty in this particular area of the code base. I'm afraid that if I do this, this thing will fall apart. Right. So that's how it practically comes out is you're honest Right. So like the if you're thinking about how do you fix fear, it's cultivating a consistent, honest environment where people don't feel like if they say what they're actually feeling, that something is going to go wrong as a result of that. Right. So that that would be the first thing. The second thing that I think is is really critical is the idea that you connect your ego to your code, that you personally feel that your ideas are representative of your value. This is a very hard one to get past and maybe one that we never actually totally get past. But the idea being like, if I have an idea and you have another idea and we come to the table, that somehow we've just become adversaries rather than on the same team, what we're actually trying to do is come up with the best idea. And maybe that's neither one of our individual ideas, but it will result in someone giving up their idea. This can be harmful to our pride and our ego. And the best teams know how to quickly move on. And this is kind of at an individual level, but also at a team level, how to quickly move on without attaching some sense of failure to letting an idea go, right? Let that idea pass. So that's a really hard one to do. And it's one that you'll find yourself holding on to an idea and even justifying it because you think it's right. But ultimately, the best thing that you can do in a lot of cases is to let the idea go. The third and and kind of the final thing that I think is important is that we don't see each other just as code generating machines, that we actually deeply recognize the humanity on our team. This starts with appreciation and it continues into building relationships. 
that doesn't mean that you have to become best friends with everyone on your team. That's not that's not the point. Although the highest performing teams, typically they do have people who are close enough to call each other friends. That's a hard thing to you know force, right? But you do need to recognize that this person is not just represented by the PRs that they deliver or by the emojis that they send in Slack. They have a full life outside of work and so do you. And, you know, you bring that, if you can bring your whole human self to work and you can invite others to bring their whole human self to work, it's a more colorful experience, a more trusting environment. There's just a lot of good that comes with that, right? It's, it's, it changes the dynamic of your work environment. I think you, yeah, you touched on a couple of really interesting things there. And like, especially with the ego and code and the best idea, one way that I've these work with different people and the, the, how I try to frame things. It's like, it's the best maybe idea that we have right now. Practicing a level of impermanence about, you know, our decisions. It's never forever. And one of the reasons is software is because it's supposed to be malleable and we can make changes to it later on. And if we're worried that this is the forever decision, but yet, you know, sometimes you also have experience and know that we make decisions. You don't always go back and refactor that or setting a course that's going to make some impact on things for quite a while. I think there's ways to navigate that as a team. And then also there's the uh, the other aspect of how when de- developers are kind of like debating an approach, just being like, well, let's let's pilot this idea, trying to be very careful with the, like, the language you use. Like, let's pilot this approach out for a while. You know, give us a couple of weeks to go down this path. Let's have a check in and see how it's going. Is any of these potential risks or things that we're worried about still seem relevant in a few weeks or no? And more often than not, I always find that people with a period of time their attachment to that goes away. And then they're like, yeah, this is probably fine. And then they were never, you realize they were never as strongly opinionated as about it as they were at that point in time. But that is like that ego or I always worry about people saying the right way to do it. Cause I always like, well, what, what does that mean? Uh, that's a subjective thing. Unless uh, there's many right ways to do something probably. So. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to take an idea and, and adopt it, then you should have good reason. Right. And so this is where, you, you know, having values that you follow as a team can be important. It's where, I mean, having solid review structure, you can't have arbitrary opinions and then expect everyone to just kind of agree that's not going to work. And so it, it may be useful, for example, to have a value of choosing a simple option over a complicated one. And then, you know, when you're trying to decide between two directions, you can say, how can we apply our values to help us make this decision together? You know, and, and that's it's still messy, right? It, because you could still say, well, this one's simpler than this one and have a disagreement about that. So the value becomes the problem rather than the ideas becoming the problem. Kind of a stoic philosophy is that eventually none of this matters anyway, right? Like eventually we lose all this software. Eventually everything gets rewritten or, you know, all of this is going to change. And so if we try to act like our legacy is in whether we use an if statement or a case statement, then it's just not, that's, it's not, it's not a realist. It's not a rational way to think about those decisions. You just touched on values within a team. What are a few values of the team that you're currently work on? So our values, we're actually working on this um, as we speak. You know, I, I like to think more in terms of principle ideas than values, because values are going to differ from person to person. I have my personal values, but we can agree on on some principles. I think, you know, some of the principles that we have at Clearbit and then also individually on the team that I'm on at Clearbit is choosing 
simplicity that I mentioned that one already. And the reason for this is that as other developers come along, the simple option is the most obvious one, right? And so learning a new code path or coming into the project as a new developer, hopefully if we've chosen the simple options, then it's easier to to kind of grok the code, right? You have in a convention as often as we can, we're going to name things similarly. That's an example of an output from that value, or I guess that principle. You know, other principles that I think are important, balance, right? So balancing means that you're not going to be dogmatic about anything. You're not going to create arbitrary rules and then follow them to a T. You may follow them to a T as an experiment, but we're always focused on what is the outcome of this rather than what is the prescribed behavior that we want. We're always looking at the outcome. In these principles, are you getting super prescriptive on like a coding level or is it just more about like more slightly philosophical about how you might apply that to code? It's abstracted from the coding level, but I guess the reasoning for that is that the code is going to be different this week, this month, next year. And so we want to create an engine rather than gas, right? We, we want it to provide us long-term, you know, it's a function rather than a value. And having those functional principles allows you to take any situation, hopefully, theoretically at least, and have some kind of semblance of an output that people generally agree on. As an individual developer, you know, you come into a job and you have your own set of values to some degree as a coder, as a human on the planet. What sort of advice could you offer to people on how to like align that with the team's values where trying to find some compromise where that may or may may not need to happen? I, I think initially it's about having that conversation early. And even, and this is the hard part of this conversation, because we like to think that every job we could fit into uh, or every company we can fit into. And that may just not be the case. I've certainly met people who can fit in at one company and can't fit in at another one because their personal values don't align with kind of the team values, or there's at least a strong enough misalignment on one or two of them. A lot of these values are, are kind of obvious, right? Nobody wants to work in an environment where people are disrespectful, right? So you're not going to find a, a team where their value is being disrespectful. What you'll find is uh, maybe a value that produces a different value. It's not that they explicitly value something. It's that it's the result of a, of a different system of values, right? So for example, uh, this is a pretty common one. Uh, if a team values, you know, fast shipping, right? The age old, well, the break things part becomes kind of a, a second order effect. If you have a very low tolerance for chaos, then you may not fit well. And so, so if you have a value of stability, then consider whether your value is going to ultimately align. So having those conversations early is, is really important. I think it's important that you know, if you're coming in and you have your set of values, somebody else has their set of values to find common ground. You can't expect other people to just wholesale adopt the values that you have. Uh, you can share why you have them and they can share why they have theirs. And you can say, OK, what does this mean for us as a team? But for anyone to try to force their values on a team, it's probably not going to go super well. No, 
definitely had that experience a few times in my career. (laughs) I'll be back with my interview with Jonathan in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these types of discussions valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers. Perhaps leave a note on your coworker's desk saying, hey, yeah, you, have you checked out maintainable.fm yet? Question mark. No? Question mark. You're missing out. Dot, dot, dot. Anyhow, you might also consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Thank you so much. And now back to our interview with Jonathan Cottrell. What do you believe developers often get wrong when evaluating their peers? Oh, this is a fun one just generally as humans. So we'll, we'll back out away from developers and then we can apply this to developers more specifically. Humans tend to see everyone around them as inadequate, as less than them. And this isn't something that, you know, we're all walking around arrogant. This is actually a way that we can kind of containerize the rest of the world. And we have to feel okay and confident about our actions. And so we bias towards feeling like we're right And this helps us to continue being active in the world, continue making decisions without constantly being riddled with anxiety about those decisions. Right. So it's so it's actually something that has kind of evolved over many millions of years of humans where we've grown to be more confident. The other side of the sword, I guess, is that this can obviously spill over when it's our job to evaluate another person. So we can easily see other people's faults, for example. Faults are very visible, but the good aspects of what somebody has done on a team or their positive traits, those go less visible. They they become harder to see. And some of this is because of our loss aversion. There's a lot of research on loss aversion. And so we're always trying to find threats around us. We're always looking for what is going to break our team apart. And this is also why, you know, you probably have family members or friends or people in your community that you think they're constantly being negative. And that's true, but they don't see it as being negative. They see it as surviving, they may not be totally aware. They may not call it that, uh, but they see it as normal, I guess, is, is a better way to put it. And so when we're evaluating other people, we already have this this feeling that they're worse than us. We already have this loss aversion. And then we come in and we try to make sense of things. And this is where we really go wrong. A lot of times the failures that we experience as humans, as teams, are actually the result of factors that we had no control over, no way to predict. And so, for example, a project running over, this is something that happens all the time. It's going to be late. Even the best developers, the world's most brilliant minds have been late on things, right? And so when we go and we try to evaluate, you know, with hindsight, we try to think what caused us to be late. And then we make sense of it. We put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then when, when something seems to fall together properly, we're apt to believe that it's true. Even though it's something that we are evaluating, it could totally be wrong, right? And so this is why, for example, you look at the, what was it? The blue dress, gold dress thing, right? When you perceive it and it makes sense to you, it's very hard to imagine that something else could be true. 
you know, we're going to avoid explanations like, well, something random happened, right? That's not enough. We're not doing our jobs as managers. We're not doing our jobs as peers. If we just say, yep, we failed, even though we did our very best. Good job, everyone. That doesn't feel right. It feels like we need to assign cause to something. This is a problem, right? Because when we evaluate other people and something bad has happened, we very rarely want to thoroughly evaluate and accept the possibilities of that bad thing happening being totally out of our control. Instead, we want to assign blame somewhere. We want to attach that to something else. And so generally speaking, you know, performance reviews tend towards the negative side unless we actively bias away from that, unless we actively give more credit to randomness. So I think that's where that's where we go wrong. It's why performance reviews are so terrifying. It's why I can explain to you what went wrong, but you probably have a different version of events that you think went wrong. Yeah, thanks for sharing some details about how, you know, we have some of those like internal biases, some of that that's like baked into our the human condition. And when we're talking about peers of any level, whether it be friends, family, your coworkers, management. And I think it's good to be aware of that and be mindful of that. And you have to kind of, you know, add in those things to kind of check with yourself to, as you're, whenever you're filling out some evaluation form or talking about a coworker with your peers. So I, earlier you touched on something related to like within the code about how it can be helpful for when you're onboarding new developers to a project and why that's, it could be like, if you have a practice of choosing the simpler option, maybe that will cascade down to like, how do we help onboard things? And I think that's often a thing that we, we don't always like prioritize because we're always like, what does a team need right now? But like, what's the future team need? That's like always like why we produce documentation, right? It's for the future, our future selves or our future coworkers or people that replace us. But if you're open to it, I'd I'd like to run a couple of quick real world scenarios by you to get your take on related to hiring and being onboarded as a new hire. So let's say scenario number one, there's someone that finds themselves on the hiring team to bring on another developer. The team has been short staffed for a while and some members don't feel that they've had a lot of time to provide much assistance to peers and or be a mentor to say junior staff. As they interview potential candidates, they quickly find themselves writing off candidates that seem like they might need a bit of time and guidance from other experienced developers. First off, do you see any problems with this? And if so, what advice might you offer to them on how they might better hire for potential versus what they can do the moment they walk in the door as a new hire? There are problems with this and there are good parts of this. The good part, I guess, if if there's a good part to be identified, is that the team is recognizing that not just anyone can come and fill a spot in this team. This is a difficult reality to accept, and it's one that's hard to navigate, but you do need to be relatively selective when it comes to hiring. With that said, the selection criteria that you use is often skewed more towards the immediate return and the immediate cost rather than what is the, you know, what does this look like in a year, two years, five years from now? What will this person bring to the team? And so it's very possible that the project that you're working on right now that you're inclined to hire about, right, to hire for immediate progress on this, that it won't even be around in three years, right? It'll be a totally different code base. So I think requiring the evaluation 
to explicitly think about those time periods is actually a good strategy for this. So instead of saying, you know, think long term, you may provide an an evaluation for, and, and this is actually based on some research by Daniel Kahneman. He did some research on how do you evaluate candidates in that particular regard. It was for the military. And the way that they were doing it was entirely based on gut, right? They, they provided basically one overall score for a given person. And he came in and he said, okay, we need to think about multiple dimensions for a person. So we're going to evaluate each dimension differently and provide a score for each dimension. And then we'll also add in gut because that's still an important factor, right? And it turns out that that was a much more effective hiring strategy. They based the results, uh, you know, measuring whether it was effective on how long they lasted in the military. So relating that to this situation, instead of thinking, is this person good for our team or not, right? Which is going to tend towards one particular category that someone's going to think in, start asking the different categories that they may be good in. You may actually specifically ask about potential. How much potential does this person show? And create a more formalized structure for those evaluations to say, well, this person, yes, they're going to be hard immediately, but that may not be enough to reject them, right? We, we need to come up with a way of saying, you know, here are some absolute binary, if this is true, then this person can't be here. But most of the other things that we're evaluating, they should be a sliding scale. There, there should be some kind of gradual you know, score that we look at all together. Then you make some really good points there. I like that idea of like the sliding scale binary and, and admittedly just thinking about our own hiring process, we're not super clear there. And I've had people come back like, well, we interviewed this person and, you know, and their feedback and they're like, I don't think they're going to be able to be super effective in the first several months. And then I'm like, well, what about after that? What is their potential? And I think that's sometimes not a, an easy thing for people to, I don't know if we're well groomed to know how to like evaluate potential necessarily. So. But uh, another quick question is, let's say you are recently got a new job as a developer and you find yourself on a team that has a handful of other people that have, maybe there's a couple other developers there that have been here for quite some time. And but most of the rest of the team are all kind of newer as well. And then as you're working on this code base, you're noticing that there's some areas that you believe to be, you know, quite a bit of technical debt, you know, and you're still kind of new. Uh, you've checked the Git blame and nobody has touched those areas of the code in many years. Since you're still new as a developer, you might be hesitant to start raising a lot of concerns early on because you don't want to be that naysayer maybe on the team, but want to help make the situation better. What advice might you offer them on how to navigate that? So we're going to assume that we know that refactoring this or making it clearer has a positive effect on the team, that this code is sticking around is is kind of the, the assumption here. I think the first thing that you can do that has very little threat attached to it is to write some kind of integration tests. I know that's a very specific prescription, but the reason here is that it doesn't require you to change the code internals. And if you do eventually change the code internals, it provides like a guiding light for doing that, right? So it's, it's kind of the gold standard for tests that are required for refactoring. So that would be my first recommendation. Again, it sounds incredibly prescriptive, but if we were to talk about it more in abstract terms, 
I'm basically saying write out a description of how this software works, right? That's what an integration test theoretically is doing. It's it's showing you what happens when you run the, this particular code. And so that that does a few things. One, it teaches you more about that piece of code, right? Two, it provides, if you look at tests as a, as a type of documentation, it provides future developers with a way of coming in and understanding what that code does. It doesn't necessarily make the code more readable, but it does make it less scary, right? It's, there's, there's a little bit of an emotional factor here where you say, okay, even though I don't necessarily know what line 136 does, I know what this thing does altogether. I can understand what it does when, you know, in the context of the bigger picture. I think that's a really good uh, suggestion there. And I think it's not one I've heard be so explicitly called out and some of the other people that I've chatted with. So thank you for that. So as we wrap up, just a few quick questions for you. What book do you find yourself most often recommending to software developers? Oh, definitely, without a doubt, 100% of the time, it is Thinking Fast and Slow. And I mentioned him earlier, Daniel Kahneman. And it is not a software development book. So you may feel like it's a it's it's a bit of a slog. It's It can be a little bit academic at times. You can get a lot of the same value out of reading some of the summaries of the book are pretty good, but I recommend reading the whole thing because there's so much densely packed in there and it's about human behavior and about the different ways that, you know, we perceive and how that's different from reality in a lot of ways. In fact, I have an open invitation for anybody who in good faith comes to me and asks me for the book. I will buy it for them. That's how much I appreciate this book. So that would be my number one recommendation. And where can people find you online? And then figure out how to reach out to you. <laughs> yeah, they can find me at on Twitter at, at Jay Cottrell. Awesome. Uh, and then also at Developer T. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed it, Robbie.